I wasn't there to help a steel industry get breaks in their taxes, mm -hmm. but I was there to help workers. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, I always had an affinity with labor unions because they would be there looking to um, pass laws for health insurance, either for their members or in general. Mm -hmm. And I was always in favor of uh, protecting workers mm -hmm. and, and providing health, health insurance to Americans. Um, and I wrote some bills along those lines. Stay tuned to hear more from Maryland State Senator Tim Hickman. Hello, and welcome to Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we have been interviewing politicians, activists, advocates, and others since 2016 with the intention of ennobling public service, creating a platform for positive civil discourse, and facilitating dialogue with difference. This show is the antidote for those who are tired of hearing about what's going wrong with the world. We showcase people just like you who are working to leave the world better than they found it. And that's good news. And now a word from former President John F. Kennedy with his views on public service. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I'll remind you that this show is made possible by viewers like you. If you appreciate what we're doing here at Public Interest Podcast and enjoy this episode, please contribute $1 at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. We are here today with Tam Hickman, a former state senator, a Democrat from District 13 in Baltimore County, Maryland, also a former Maryland state delegate, and the author of How to Get Elected to State and Local Office. Tim is an adjunct professor of political science at the Community College of Baltimore County. Tim, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm good. Nice to be with you. Excellent. The first question I'd like to pose to you is, what are you currently doing, or what have you ever done to advance the public interest, and why? I ran for office because I believed in some principles. I believe in good government, and politics can be a, an honorable profession. Um, I got very involved in the community. Um, and I've always worked for government or worked for public interest. I um, teach now at a, at a community college for the for the fun of it, being retired, mm -hmm. and, uh, and uh, to help educate youth. Um, so I've always been dedicated to um, the public interest, I believe. You actually first got started at a young age. You ran at the age of 24. Yes. How did, many listeners to our show are young right now, how did it first occur to you to run right out of college? I was, I was still in college, actually, in my last year. Um, I've always been interested in politics. Um, I started as a, um, like, eight-year-old or six-year-old with my uncle, who was a precinct leader, mm -hmm. working with the polls with him. Very political family, uh, talking about politics at the dinner table all the time. And I just was naturally geared towards politics. Um, started a Democratic club. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a new Democratic coalition. It was the liberal reform group in the Democratic Party, anti-war, mm -hmm. um, pro-poverty um, programs. Um, and started a club in the neighborhood mm -hmm. and then decided to run for office. Uh, quit my job and started knocking on doors. So you started, so we mentioned right after the Vietnam War era, yes. in the early 70s you were getting started. Right. So you were interested in getting involved in politics, you had some sort of political activism within the family, and then you just decided, did you, and you won that first election. No. The first election I um, thought I worked real hard, it didn't uh -huh. work hard enough. I came in seven out of 17 candidates. Oh my God. Um, but for, for the three seats. Uh -huh. um, and uh, I learned some things. I learned how hard it is and decided to keep at it. 
Well, let's walk, walk us through exactly what happened in that first campaign all the way through your last campaign, kind of in the format of your book. I know you wrote a book, How to Get Elected. You learned a lot of lessons along the way. So how did you learn to get elected, and how did you even decide that you wanted to remain committed and run for a second and third time? Well, I, I had a, a, a lot of volunteers, mm-hmm. a lot of young people who were in school with me, and people in the community in the Reform Democratic Club. And um, I went door to door and I campaigned, but I didn't realize how big a job it was. I was running against an established organization, a mm-hmm. machine, mm-hmm. and which was pretty tough. Um, and I still, I, I think um, being interested in politics is a personality aberration. You never really, you, you, you're always a uh, recovering politician. You, mm-hmm. you never really quite get it out of your bloodstream. Um, but I really wanted to, to make a change. I really Some things I really wanted to do mm-hmm. um, in, in uh, state office. So I ran again. I started like two years earlier, mm-hmm. formed a campaign committee again, uh, started having fundraisers, low budget. Uh, we wouldn't take money for business. I don't really think you can be in Annapolis voting on bills dealing with business and be financed by business. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just have small contributions, a lot of people, a lot of small campaign uh, fundraisers. Mm-hmm. Um, started. I found some other people, two other people, or three other people who wanted to run together. We formed a small ticket, one for county council and me for the House of Delegates, mm-hmm. um, and two for the Central Committee. We just one at it night and day. So you formed a slate? Yes. A and small, what were the results small, of that slate? Um, the, the two of us running for paid office won. Mm-hmm. Uh, the two running for the Central Committee did not win. Mm-hmm. Um, one later became a member of the House, uh, the, later became a member of the County Council, and the other one became my administrative assistant in Annapolis. Now, I imagine later on the machine did get behind you as an incumbent senator. How is it that, how did you transition from getting the machine, running against the machine in your first election to subsequently getting the, becoming part of the machine and having some of your own colleagues on the Central Committee, which is the machine? Well, the machine I thought was the established long-term politics, the good old boys, right? And I never really joined them uh, throughout the course of your career, right? In the general election, I figured if the if the voters chose me and vote and chose these people, we would run as Democrats together in the general election. But um, I ran for the Senate against one of the people who were an incumbent mm-hmm. uh, in the House with me mm-hmm. uh, when the the incumbent senator moved on to run for county executive. Um, I was never part of the organization. I never did their kind of politics. I always ran a, a different style of politics, I think. So in 2018, America is seeing a lot of insurgents, uh, insurgent political movements across the country on both the right and the left. Um, you, you have an individual who just, uh, you have Paul, Ra- Paul Ra- um, you have uh, Eric Cantor, who is a, potentially would have been the next uh, speaker of the, of the uh, House of Representatives who was defeated by a Tea Party person on the far right, and then you have establishment uh, Democrats in Congress who were defeated uh, up in the Bronx by uh, that young woman. So uh, you, how is it that once you were in office and you were able to overcome the, the, the established establishment, how is it that you were able to work um, with those colleagues who were part of the establishment who had opposed you once you were in the state legislature? Sometimes we work together, and sometimes we were at loggers with each other. I've always had local opposition from mm-hmm. the other side, mm-hmm. um, and it was very tense sometimes. Um, so I, I just didn't join in with them. They had a different style of politics, 
and a different objective. One guy one time said, well, I'm, I'm in this office because it's an exclusive club. And I, that's why you ran for office to be part of an exclusive club? I'm trying to get something done for people. Well, let's I'm, make this more concrete. So you said there were a few factors that first motivated you to run. So yeah. what were some of your top priorities? Well, I, I really... One of the things I wanted to do was um, save a lot of land in the community. Mm -hmm. There was a state highway going through, mm -hmm. and when the state highway went through, it would have then changed the whole structure of the community. The zoning would change. There would be more people. Um, the local stores would go away. The roads would, would be clogged. The schools would be clogged. Um, you would have... Um, no green space. So you opposed the highway? I opposed the highway, and the, my point was to stop the highway, and I was part of a stop Metropolitan Boulevard effort in the community, and by the time I got to be in the legislature, we were able to, well, I was able to take some of that land uh, that was up for grab and put it in the state park take line, and now much of that land that is going to be developed um, between Baltimore and Washington and the, the Patapsco River mm -hmm. area is now a park and it saves some green space. So you were successful? Yes, it? very successful with that. You know, you're not the only one from the Baltimore area who rose up to political prominence on this stopping a highway issue. Right. Uh, former Mayor Donald Schaefer of Baltimore City had wanted to extend uh, I-95 up through 83 through Baltimore City. And uh, Barbara Mikulski became an activist, didn't, didn't want to see the destruction of Fells Point and Canton, uh, and ended up uh, rising up to the Baltimore City Council and subsequently to the United States Senate uh, based on her opposition to this road effort. Did you ever collaborate with her, or did you see any similarities between your and there her? Was some. She had a much bigger fight in Baltimore City than we did in the county, but um, I worked with Barbara a lot, and I have uh, a great deal of respect for her. Yeah. So what other sort of... So how... And, and so... We, we, with, we were talking about the context of working with these other old boy establishment Democrats who you had originally run against. Um, how, what, were the inter, what was it like to, to, to interact with them on this particular issue of stopping the highway? They were not working to stop it. Um, were they more in the pockets of developers who contributed? Um, possibly. Um, one of the candidates I know was very involved mm -hmm. in the, with the developers. Um, and actually, when, when I had um, put some land in the state park take line, mm -hmm. um, and I was in the House, the senator at the time, who I did not get along with at all, um, tried to take uh, the language out of the budget. Yeah. Um, some other senators from Baltimore City were very kind, um, Clarence Blatt being one. And um, actually, I believe the... Uh, the president of the uh, Senate at the time, Steny Hoyer, mm -hmm. um, brought the amendment up when uh, my um, nemesis was out of the room, <laughs> and uh, it started going through. He ran in, and they banged the gavel, and he couldn't stop it. Um, so it was a fight. So you're able to make progress, I guess, the message for the listeners, even because many listeners are, are trying to look... I'm, I'm trying to see if, there's, if there are lessons from the past that can be applied to our future. And so with these individuals running around a nation against the establishment, it is possible to make progress once you're elected. Yes, and I see a parallel between the 60s and the era, the era of Watergate to the era we have now where there's a lack of um, uh, civility and there's a lack of um, respect for the rule of the law mm -hmm. and the people getting involved in politics now 
um, I see a parallel between. Talk more those. about that. Did it start with McCarthyism? Did you see it with with the Red Scare? Or are you talking more about kind of the anti-war peace and love movement of the of the late sixties? What What are you talking about? Mostly the anti-war movement, mm-hmm. um, and there was an insurgency within the Democratic Party, New Democratic Coalition, the McCarthy people, and the Kennedy people. Um, We're talking and, about Bobby Kennedy. Yes, and. That group became a reform group. It formed a whole thing called the New Democratic Coalition, which I was part of, and it was uh, changed politics then. And a lot of people got involved. A lot of people got involved in politics because of John Kennedy, um, and it, uh, appealing to people's better nature mm-hmm. and public service. And I've always been. I always thought politics was an honorable profession, and public service was a high calling in life, and I see some of that coming up again uh-huh. in reaction to our current president. Would you say that's generally the popular American sentiment, that public service is noble and honorable? No, and there's a great deal of cynicism about politics, mm-hmm. and part of that is really being fostered now by uh, the president, mm-hmm. I believe. Part of it, the news media is always very cynical about politics. I, I was surprised I would be there in Annapolis, and I was see some ridiculous bill that some clown would put in, mm-hmm. and that would be a headline. Mm-hmm. And then some good things would not be covered by the, by the press. Right. And the press liked to pick on the, the craziness and, the, 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 um, and have a very cynical focus. And it's good to be cynical. Did you ever talk to a journalist? Oh, about yeah, about this lots of times. Well, what did they say? Well, they would say, well, uh, we, we're doing what people are interested in. I said, no, you're not, get, get, not talking about what's really going on here. Mm-hmm. You're talking about scandalous things. You're talking about crazy things. Um, and the public sees the General Assembly um, through your eyes, and you're very cynical. Mm-hmm. And that's, it's okay to be cynical, but you can't turn people off to politics. You can't make them think that it's all corrupt and why bother and why should I vote? And because de- because democracy only works when people believe in democracy and believe in principles of the government and want to be involved. Now, some of the founding fathers have referred to journalism as the fourth estate, right? And so clearly, the state legislature, as any legislative body, would fund the first three estates. So the governor's salary, salaries for anyone in the executive branch, the legislat- legislators' salaries, and of course, the salaries of any judges and their staff and the judiciary. Uh, were there ever discussions during your time in the state legislature to fund the fourth estate? No, no. But nowadays, with the print media uh, uh, really in uh, retreat mm-hmm. um, because of advertising, um, I'm not sure what's going to happen to newspapers. The Baltimore Sun was a great newspaper. It had bureaus around the world, mm-hmm. um, and Kennedy was one of the five papers that John Kennedy read. Mm-hmm. Now it's in it's a almost a local paper, mm-hmm. um, exclusively. Um, there's a couple of great papers left, and maybe we have to go to turn newspapers into um, um, nonprofit public institutions or look like public radio. Mm-hmm. Um, what's what's going to be the future of great papers? How are you going to authenticate articles? How are you going to get um, in-depth um, studies on, on issues? And if it's not for public radio, uh, then you have the Washington Post and the New York Times. What else, what else is left where you have good journalism? Um, that's the concern. So you said that uh, while you were in elected office, the... Um 
state the, uh, the, the the local press corps kind of determined the, the sentiments and the discussion about what was happening in Annapolis. How did you see uh, the impact of the stories written about by the local press corps in Annapolis? Uh, uh, how did you how did you perceive uh, that the your constituents were receiving what you were doing as opposed to? through the end-of-session letters or through town hall meetings? Did you feel like there was some sort of discrepancy in their perception of Annapolis versus your perception? Oh, yeah. I would sit there, and I would, when I would be part of something, I would read it in the paper saying, this is not what's going on at all. This is nothing like what's, what's happening. Was there any way to correct the record? No. And then I, but then I would turn the next page and read another article and say, oh, well, look at that. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't... The, the, the discrepancy between the details of the reality yeah. and the news coverage... Um, is so wide sometimes, mm-hmm. and yet it, sometimes the stories are too complicated to to, co- to cover properly. There, there were some good reporters, and there's some other reporters who who were out to get a story and didn't really care mm-hmm. uh, what, what the facts were. Were reporters uh, able to hold power accountable as they often claim to aspire towards? And, and yes, and sometimes as investigative journaling, uh, journalism is great, mm-hmm. and uh, exposing. Uh, hypocrisy mm-hmm. and corruption is, is great mm-hmm. and it's a necessary function, but sometimes they don't get the story. Uh, I also would get uh, called for interviews. Um, well, there was a former opponent, he was running for something else, and I know the reporter wanted me to say something bad about him. Mm-hmm. And he just dug and dug and dug, and he would say, Well, would it be true that? And mm-hmm. I didn't want to say something bad about him, and yet he just dug and dug and dug trying to get me to say something bad. And like he had the story written already, yeah. and he wanted some details to fill it in, and that's that's different from investigating and telling what the reality is. Um, so uh, I'd like to transition to your book because you've been out of office for some time now, and you're the author of How to Get Elected to State and Local Office. What led to you writing this book? What are some of the lessons in that book? I've talked about politics, and I've talked about it in class, and I talked to my wife, who's a excellent writer, uh, about. Um, the lessons I learned, and it's it's such that no one ever tells you how to run for office. Mm-hmm. You have to sort of figure it out through trial and error. And there's a lot of people now, I think, running for office, and I wanted to make my contribution um, to their campaigns and to help them get elected. And so I tried to go from nuts and bolts from the beginning to the end, mm-hmm. describe the process, and give um, real tips and hints and examples of what to do and what not to do, how to do it with a level of ethics, um, and, how to, and how to win. So why would you say that ethics is important? A lot of times in the 21st century, it seems, and, and much of, of all of American history, uh, it's, uh, sometimes the emphasis is, is placed on a zero-sum game, that you have to win at all costs. I know uh, many uh, politicians have conveyed that message uh, to the general public. Why, do you, why does it matter how you win? I think it matters how you win because you have to be proud of your campaign. Mm-hmm. You have to sleep at night. Mm-hmm. You have to have a sense of, um, of, of um, moral um, development. To, to take money from interests that you have to vote on, mm-hmm. I think it's wrong. There's, there's so much brokering uh, between uh, special interests mm-hmm. in politics, and I think it's wrong for them to be financing the election of politicians. 
Can you reflect at all on the influence of special interest groups such as labor unions and environmental groups and other groups on your own elections? Well, I drew a line between environmental groups uh-huh. and unions uh-huh. um, and, and groups in the community than businesses. Uh-huh. Um, I wasn't there to help a steel industry get breaks in their taxes, uh-huh. but I was there to help workers. Uh-huh. Um, and so uh, I always had an affinity with labor unions because they would be there looking to um, pass laws for health insurance, either for their members or in general. Mm-hmm. And I was always in favor of uh, protecting workers mm-hmm. and, and providing health, health insurance to Americans. Um, and I wrote some bills along those lines. Would you and, share an anecdote about uh, where you had an ethical quandary that you were able to meet with integrity? Yeah, there was um, people from Bethlehem Steel, a big steel corporation. Um, they, one, their, one of their lobbyists um, said, you should come to our dinner. They had a big fancy dinner for legislators. And um, I said, no, I don't think I will. Mm-hmm. And then, no, everybody has to be there. The senator, I was in the house, the senator came up into my office slamming doors and yelling, you know, this is not right. You, you, you have to be... Um, uh, part of the delegation, I said, no, I don't. I, mm-hmm. I'm not there to re- represent Bethlehem Steel. I'm representing the people in my district, mm-hmm. some of which work there. And had you attended the dinner, do you think that might have influenced your vote? No, but I, I've seen too many colleagues would say, oh, my, my good friend, um, I went fishing with him and played golf with him, and he, and he says that I should vote this way. And I, I tried to say, they're not your good friend. They're somebody <laughs> paid money to suck up to you, mm-hmm. and they're just trying to get your vote. And mm-hmm. I, I always was um, very hesitant in interacting with, with um, lobbyists. Now, some lobbyists should print out the facts for you, look, do research. Mm-hmm. When you ask questions, that's fine. But the ones that try to be your buddy to get uh-huh. you to vote that way made my skin, my, uh, skin crawl. You know, on the topic of good friends, not many listeners probably have much of an idea of what happens after you're an elected official. When you're a former elected official, you've spent quite a number of years as a former elected official up to this date. To what extent do you remain friends with lobbyists and former legislators from, from your days in office who have nothing to gain uh, financially or, or legislatively by remaining in contact with you? Well... Very little. Uh, once you're out of office, you kind of disappear. Um, I found some of my colleagues who I thought were my friends um, had little time for me uh, when I would try to engage them in conversation. Others um, I remember, I remain great friends with. Um, so it depends. Some are there are any shy. lobbyists or former legislators who are now lobbyists who, who you still have a relationship with or yeah. mostly? I never had a good relationship with any lobbyists. Um, but, uh, it really is utilitarian then. Yeah, it, it, for me, they were there for it's a function, insincere. but I try to keep my distance from them uh, socially and interact them, with them only in a very professional level. Interesting. Um, I was an oddball. <laughs> so what I just, um, are there any other, as we, any other general over uh, highlights of your book that you'd like to share with our, if there were two or three takeaway points about how to get elected? Well, one is to work real hard, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the hours the hours you have to put in are immense. The most important thing is on the street, meeting people at the door. All these um, social um, tools that are available now, Facebook and Twitter and the rest, are nice, um, but the, the, the way you get elected is face-to-face with people. Mm-hmm. And um, going to the doors, I went to uh, every door in my district two and a half times, 
Um, and in one campaign. So in one campaign. Uh, in the primary. And I went back again um, in the general. Mm-hmm. Um, and people got to know me. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it was raining, I was there with an umbrella. And they, I looked like someone had been out in the rain all day. <laughs> and uh, I think people knew I really wanted to uh, get their vote. Um, work with the community. It's better to come from the community as a, as a community activist mm-hmm. than it is to go into politics just to want to be a politician. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, to, to do it with integrity is important. Uh, you, you really need to raise an army, mm-hmm. um, a lot of volunteers. One of the things I've seen, so many people get distracted and not campaign efficiently. Mm-hmm. I, I had a mantra, if the next dollar you're about to spend or the next minute you're about to spend can't be translated into getting a vote, don't do it. Mm-hmm. Be efficient, stop theorizing, stop um, planning and, and, um, and doing things that are not important to getting elected. Mm-hmm. You don't, it's a small number of people that it's necessary to get elected in a primary mm-hmm. and you have to find them and then you have to identify them and you have to get them out to the polls. Mm-hmm. And if you do that, Sometimes you can win. It all depends on who, who you're running against. If there's opportunity, there's no incumbent, or the incumbents are in disarray, or there's a national movement to turn over um, people in one party, like there might be now, mm-hmm. um, then you have chances to get elected where you might not otherwise. And so it's half how hard you campaign, and it's half the environment you're campaigning in. So it's half opportunity and half work. So, Tim, as we approach the end of this podcast episode, I'd like to ask you a final two-part question. I'd like to ask you to speak to your former constituents of District 13 and uh, reflect upon why it is that you've served, what you had hoped to do, what you were able to accomplish, and why you were able to engage in public service and continue to engage uh, through, through in your teaching capacity and as an author, and what you would say to them in terms of the impact of your work and your legacy. Well, I hope I've done some things that are, um, have a legacy. Um, I talked about the park. Um, I did some things um, in health insurance. I did. I, did some, I passed a bill, uh, truth and auto repair, uh, those sort of things. Um, but I also tried to make sure their interest came first mm-hmm. and not be there and be brokering um, special interest. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore... Um, I hope I did a good job. I hope I got some people enthusiastic about politics. I had some people who were very strong supporters. I uh, have lunch with them once in a while, people in the community, and that's fun to see that they're, you know, they're still involved. Um, and so I hope through public service I did some, some public service. And that has been Tim Hickman, former Maryland State Senator, delegate, Central Committee member, and an author uh, of of a book about how to get elected to local office, um, who speaks about public service as uh, as a community activist, as somebody who cares about very local issues and was able to make change uh, through uh, legislation in an ethical way. He speaks about avoiding the pitfalls of potential conflicts of interest and remaining true to your uh, foundational uh, reasons for, for running for office, which is to accomplish particular goals that advance the interests of your community. Uh, he hopes that by writing this book, he's able to inspire others to get involved and to provide them some sort of a blueprint for future success. So, Tim, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. 
This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com, iTunes, or your favorite podcast listening platform. And please join the conversation by calling 240-630-0380 or emailing engage at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.